0: the song I know.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Here we go. Turn it up and love it.
2: <laughs> On this day
0: in
1: 1967, the musical Hair, a celebration of happy culture, debuts at the New York Shakespeare Festival... I saw this at the Souter Gallery in Nelson, of course, Uh, as a teenager. The freedom, the big hair, the kaleidoscopic waistcoats, the grooviness of it all. Something really appealed to me about this and I've never forgotten it. I've never forgotten that screening at the Souter Gallery of this uh, film here.
0: Have you not missed out something reasonably important? What? Wasn't there a full frontal nude in it? Yes, there was. Yes, th- I mean, you know, hello, Wallace. <laughs> hello, <laughs> was, hello, there. hello. That's yeah. probably something worth remembering. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and in fact, like, more than just one. There was quite a lot of.
1: There's a lot of freedom in it.
0: A lot of freedom, yeah, a lot of freedom and, in it. and yeah. some had less
1: costumes than others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about you, Steve? Uh, you, you're from Manchester. Were you taken with the harmony and understanding, the mystic crystal revelations, the sheer Aquarianness of it all?
3: No, no, that, that kind of like, peace, love and understanding thing didn't come to Manchester much later. The 90s were our era. it <laughs> yes. was we still very repressed back then.
1: Uh, indeed. And weren't the 90s great in your fair city, like, the best? Oh, um, oh you have no idea. <laughs> um, Duncan says, I'm a secondary teacher. How long would I have my job if, when busting, I replied like that to a st- stream of nasty, antagonising questioning? Um, yeah, very interesting. Um the panel, uh International, twenty-five to five, Cindy Michener and Steve McCabe with us uh this afternoon. Lovely to have you company. Now let's return to the shakedown post election and things um and the changing political makeup of Tamaki Makaurau. Our next guest wrote Quite an interesting opinion piece today that Auckland lurched away from Labour, took his chance, ran for the hills. Labour lost seven Auckland electorates, now has only six of the 21. Easily the bluest metropolitan centre in the country. And we have two panellists, Auckland panellists here, one from Papakura, one from Karaka, with us um, senior writer for the New Zealand Herald, Simon Wilson, who wrote that piece. Kia ora, Simon ora, Wallace, quite
2: an interesting piece. I'll take it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Damned by faint praise. Well, I, was... I, also,
2: I also want to know, Wallace. You have to confess to this now, you were
1: playing the Age of Aquarius just for Winston Peters, (laughs) Well, That's right. I segued nicely into that, to this. No, um, fair to say, more than interesting because it got my attention uh, enough for it to be talked about on the panel. But no, I mean, so we're an Auckland panel here, and Auckland, look, lurching away from Labour, and some of that lurching in those safe seats, it was quite stark, wasn't it?
2: It was extremely stark. There are uh, four... um inner-west seats, or inner-city inner inner-west seats, Mount Albert, Mount Roscoe, um, Atatū, and New Lynn, all of which have gone to national or almost gone to national, and they were regarded as safe Labour seats. Quite a shock there, uh, and other shocks around the city as well.
1: What was this down to? One other piece said, look, this was perhaps punishment for the 12-week lockdown that Aucklanders had to endure. Have we underappreciated the social effect that COVID had?
2: I think there is a really deep, enormous and very difficult social um, trauma that's happened in the country uh, because of uh, the pandemic and it's really accusing this city um, and it's going to play out for um, a long time to come. And I don't know that... It's not obvious that Labour really understood that. Um, so, you know, they were criticised for not being here often enough yeah, but, you know, when they chose as their new leader the COVID-19 minister, um, and he didn't make the kinds of steps you might have expected to to say, OK, I get it, I understand. Um, I think that probably played badly with quite a lot of people.
1: Right. Well, let's bring Steve uh, Papakura there. What's your take on this?
2: Uh,
3: actually, I'm in Pukakoe, Actually, to be honest, I used to uh, work in Papakura.
1: Yeah, uh, my, my did, apologies. Yes, yeah. No, we're, we're... I keep a
3: safe. I keep a, I keep a very safe distance from Judith Collins. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I, I'm down in down in Pukakoe. and I think that to be honest, um, Aucklanders have very. Sh- or most people have very short memories. I think people have largely forgotten um, that lockdown. I think if we've forgotten that, we've also forgotten the fact that we've saved um, twenty thousand lives by doing what we did. So I don't necessarily think that's the issue. I think the big problem is that, that, that Labour didn't give themselves enough to distinguish themselves um, from national. So if people were minded for a change, what's the closest thing to Labour? It was national. We still saw people like Chloe Swarbrick um, winning Auckland Central. Now, she is a force of nature. She's an incredible um, politician. She's a powerful force. And part of the reason why she, the, the Greens won Auckland Central was Chloe herself. But even so... When when voters were offered a really serious alternative to Labour on the left, they did take it. Now, it was especially surprising that Takanini went blue. That one really shocked me. But no, I think overall, I think it was basically there wasn't enough to distinguish Labour from national.
0: Well, you're shaking your head there, Cindy, so, uh, to you and then to Simon. Well, a, a, a couple of things, and that is I think you're wrong about how nah. deeply the grudge and resentment was felt about Auckland's lockdown, particularly, you know, everybody knows someone who uh, had a funeral that they couldn't get to, they couldn't go and see people who were sick. I think that that is um, a very important part of it. And the other thing is that there was a lot of promises to Auckland, and, 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 you know, much as I am a bit of a left wing, I... A lot didn't happen, you know, and and, and Labour seemed unable to execute. Good vision. And Auckland needs to get on with stuff, you know. You drive from the south into the city, you know, we need okay. to get on
2: with
1: So, things. yes, Cindy's saying one thing, uh, Steve's saying another. So let's bring you in, Simon.
2: And I think I agree with um, <laughs> everything, if that's possible. Uh, I, I think Steve is quite right, um, uh Chloe Swarbrick's the force of nature. Brooke Van Valden for the ACT Party uh, similarly won a major upset in um, in the uh, Tamaki electorate, um, and she also is uh, an outstanding politician and managed to galvanise people around her and her party. Um, so those are two seats where Aucklanders went. Actually, these are people who stand for something uh, that we can understand that is real uh, and is better than the mishmash in the middle, and, and they voted accordingly. And the third Auckland seat where that was almost true is Tamaki Makaurau, right. where Wainae uh, is holding on by the skin of his teeth, waiting, hoping on those special votes. Um, Steve also mentioned Takanini. It uh, was a new electorate in the last um, in the last election, 2020. Uh, went Labor then, and has now resoundingly gone National. That's a very fast-growing uh, part of the city in the south, uh, with parts of Takanini and Pakura and Drury and places like that. Um, and that's part of the future of the city. And and you can see a similar thing that happened mm. in Upper Harbour, where there's big growth in the northwest. And in those sorts of electorates. Yeah, crime becomes important everywhere where there are immigrant communities of real size now, and and in many cases, their second, third, fourth generation. It's not not that you have to um, reject the Labour argument that solving crime and solving youth crime is complex. Of course it is complex. Of course it's difficult. Of course it requires a lot of wraparound, hands-on social work, but shopkeepers have a right to be safe in their work. And yeah. Labour never really understood how to confront that enormous and really troubling reality. Do you agree with
1: that, Cindy?
0: Yeah, look, I do. And, and you know, the, the things come out on the news that there was this fund for the, what are they called? Bollocks? They're not bollocks. What are they? those things you put <laughs> bollards. in? Oh, bollards. Oh, yeah. Yes, close.
3: <laughs> so, no, the discussion around it was bollocks.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so the bollards, there was a big fund for it. And then you hear, oh, well, actually, they've only used uh, eight percent of it somewhere, and there's all this money languishing. I mean, you know, how hard is it to say, you know, uh, I, I've been ram-raided, give me the money.
2: That goes to your point about um, things not being done. The, yes. The, the standout example yep. in Auckland is, is a light rail, not a, yep. um, not the not gun. Um, there is a big question for Labour, and it's going to take a lot of digging to, f- to find the answers to this. Why did they not manage to progress big projects, um, much-needed projects uh, in, in ways that people could understand. And, and one of the disappointments, I think, for a lot of people uh, with the crushing of labor is that the whole idea that you can build a, a mass transit system or you can have transformational projects um, is, has been discredited. Um, and it will become much harder for any government now.
1: Yeah. You, just finally, the, the point you pick up is quite interesting uh, in this opinion piece uh, today in The Herald. You say that we are, as you mentioned, Simon, an immigrant city, an Asian immigrant city, and yeah. national understands this better than Labour.
2: Well, one of the one of the ironies, or irony, that's perhaps the wrong word, one of the things that if you look at those four electorates I, I mentioned at the start... Um, all four of them, Labour st- stood a Pakiha uh, candidate and uh, uh, sitting MPs, um, and in all four of them, National stood uh, someone from an immigrant background, uh, and um, the results uh, speak for themselves. I think
1: really interesting uh, piece, uh, Simon I Appreciate your time today. That's uh, senior writer for the New Zealand Herald, Simon Wilson. You can check that out on the. Uh Uh, online there. It's uh, quite passionate responses about this, uh, whether you thought that um, a lot of people do actually think the lockdown was uh, overly harsh. Uh, Some don't. Um, Many agree with Steve McCabe's sentiments about 20,000 lives saved. Another one says uh, we should be compensated for that second lockdown. It was a long lockdown. 12 plus weeks. Anyway, 15 to 5, the panel, NZ uh, National. 10 to 5, we have two absolutely wonderful pieces of panel show and tell to give to you. I cannot wait uh, for that. But this here, fascinating piece. A group of spectators ran onto the field during the Meads Cup rugby final over the weekend. I've seen the video, actually. The, the pitch invaders were... South Canterbury fans celebrating their team's try against the visiting Whanganui Rugby Union with five minutes still left on the clock. South Canterbury has apologised and the issue is being looked into. To discuss we have Bridget Balsham, Chief Executive of Whanganui Rugby. Bridget, nice to have you here.
4: Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me on. I was interested about this, Bridget, because this happened, um, I can't recall, was it Tauranga or was it Napier, but another um, really significant pitch invasion uh, which went on through the whole game. What do you think makes people storm onto a pitch? Uh,
4: I, I think, to be honest, like New Zealand's a pretty um, supportive um you know, like sporting uh, sporting countries, so I think fans are just genuinely passionate and they want to celebrate a team's success. But um, intoxication, I think, impairs people's judgment, and I think a lot of these people that do invade the pitches have been consuming alcohol. So, I think that leads to spectators making bad decisions and resulting in reckless behaviour like jumping fences and you know, jumping onto a field during a game mm. and those sort of things. So I think, you know, there's always a small few that ruin it for others. But on Saturday, it was about 30 of them.
1: So, Yes, and you did come out quite strongly on that, Bridget. You said, quoting, this was an extremely serious and disappointing end uh, to what was a competitive game.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was five minutes from the game. I mean, I wouldn't say, it's hard to ever say if, if that affected the outcome of the game. Mm. We still had about five minutes to go. Um, South Canterbury did have the momentum at the time, but you know, you, a lot of people have seen plenty of rugby games that can change uh, in the next in the five minutes. You know, you look just look at the Wellington Hawks Bay game in the weekend, and Wellington scored two converted tries in the last sort of three or four minutes. So, i what
0: was the score? The what was the score at invasion time?
4: Uh, It was 33-30 and then South Canterbury scored a try and then converted. So at that point, it it ended up being 40-30. So I'm not, you know, I'm not definitely not saying that Perch invasion affected the outcome of the game, but we'll never know, right?
1: (laughs) It was the behaviour,
4: right? 100%, yeah. Yeah.
1: Steve?
3: Well, I mean, again, I'm going to invoke my my Manchester childhood here. Oh, yes. And I grew up. I grew up watching football in the 70s and 80s in Manchester and in England. Oh, wow. And seeing absolutely abominable behavior by supporters that routinely went from, oh, yeah, it's innocent, lighthearted exuberance to, oh, dear, they're knocking seven shades out of each other. Mm. Um mm. And 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 things like pitch invasions were, were were frequently precursors to to serious violence. And so no, this 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 doesn't seem like a good thing. It's not something you can just simply dismiss as being oh well, you know they got carried away. It, it felt wrong to me.
4: Oh, I guess as a CA sitting on the field, um, you know, South Canterbury scored. Um, I guess the. You know, each of it at Heartland Rugby, like we do have passionate fans, and um, we are sort of fortunate where our stadiums, or even some of our uh, games that are played in our smaller communities, um, enables you know our smaller smaller communities to experience our Heartland Rugby. Um, but it, it is um, concerning when you have thirty or so people jump on the field, um, pushing and jostling um, our players who are sort of just wanting mm. to be there playing rugby, right? Trying Indeed. to trying to win a trophy, so.
0: But I think there's um, a growing trend for political activism by interrupting sports events. I think this probably wasn't that. Um, You know, it probably falls into that uh, drunken silly category which doesn't mean I condone it in the slightest but I do think an interesting trend in sports events around the world now is that big sports events are being used as a showcase for political activism. I mean I watch show jumping, right? Yeah. And some... uh, animal rights activists ran into the arena while the horse and rider were in the middle of a but this competition. But is, this is
1: different. This is nothing political about um, pitch invasions. That's a different topic, yeah. isn't
0: it? Uh, well, I don't know. I just think it's attention-seeking okay. for, you know, one well, way ju- or another. Just
1: finally, uh, Bridget, what's, because it is, in the final instance, it's about people going along, as I do, and enjoying a game of rugby. Mm-hmm. What's advice to those who want to go along? Just sort of, you know, g- keep it on the down low, keep calm.
4: You know, I, I don't want to ever stop people's passion and enthusiasm yeah, for rugby, true. for rugby, or even sport in general. But I think, um, I think having um, social media has a lot, lot to do with it. I think people do it for attention, and, and um, you've already said that. You know, people do it for attention. There's TV coverage. A Meads Cup final for us is the absolute pinnacle for us. That's right. that is like a World Cup for the All Blacks. So yeah, for yeah. us, it was a massive, a massive, um, massive event. Um, And yeah, there are passionate fans, Um, it's an amateur rugby competition, but in this instance I don't think there was any political, um, anything behind that that political aspect, but it was just more around enthusiastic fans had drunken too much, intoxication and their judgement, their enthusiasm ran on. Mm. I guess we're just fortunate that we didn't have any players that got seriously injured.
1: Bridget, kia really great to have you on the panel, I do appreciate your time. Um, Bridget Belgian, the chief executive of Hwang Rugby. Can I just bring up briefly before? I've just thought of something. Um, I've, 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 I've always forgotten, Steve, that you are from uh, one of the
3: centers. greatest cities in the world. Yeah.
1: Well, I was going to. Well, in terms <laughs> a of a Mancunian. Well, in terms of sport, Mancunian. Thank you. Well, oh,
0: Mancunian. In terms sorry. of
1: sport and music, that's hard to disagree with. What was it like yeah. growing up in Manchester, knowing you had teams like Manchester United?
3: Well, I mean, it, in some ways, it's a bit like um, a fish not knowing that it's wet. you just sort of like, this is, this is what we were. But I have, I have a recollection of, of going to the U.S. for a year in 88. And I came back to England in 1989 and sitting in the middle of Manchester and everyone wearing T-shirts from this band called the Stone Roses and having no idea what the <laughs> fuss was about. And I, and I went home and said to my little brother, Neil, um, you know, tell me about this band. And he gave me the cassette and I listened. And an hour later, I was going, OK, yeah, I get it now. Wow. And for a while... Um, Manchester. I remember driving home from town one day, and I saw the city in the rearview mirror. And on the wrong Piccadilly radio, the guy said, "Live from the centre of the coolest city in the world." And I actually believed it, so and cool. it felt good. Oh. Only lasted a couple of years, but while while Manchester was the thing, oh dear God, it was good.
1: Yeah, bring me the giving the chills. Have you have you been to see Man U play?
3: Uh, not for a very long time. My dad used to be a season ticket holder many, many years ago. He was actually quite well connected with, and we used to have a, a lot of the the players and managers actually came to visit the house. <laughs> My dad was really big in with with United, wow. but I never quite realised just you know what what I was involved with. Amazing, it was, and just like fi- I say it was just there.
1: Finally, because um, I'm a big sports doco fan, have you been watching Beckham?
3: No, I, I'm not that interested in football. Oh, to be I have. honest. Um, Tell me about it. Please tell fantastic. me
0: about it. He loved her so much at the beginning. He used to, mm. you know, he used it's, to drive for miles to see her for two minutes. He just, she was much it's such more an insight. Polished. It, yeah. It's an insight he into was football. Green.
1: It's an insight into David Beckham. It's an insight into Man U.
0: Um, and one of the managers yeah. wasn't very nice. Howley or Arthur or someone.
1: Yeah, no, it's really great. Um, I'd be interested to see what, see what you make of it, Steve. Anyway, I, I'm sold. um, uh, i so excited about this. So every so often we have this infrequent um, an occasional series. It's called The Show and Tell on the Panel, where you look in the bottom of the drawer and tell the whole of the country something you've got, kind of like a school show and tell. With us first from Pukekohe is Dave. Welcome, Dave.
5: Hi, Wallace. How are you going? What do you got? I've got a – my grandfather played cricket for Australia, so I've got a 1931 baggy green cap from uh, his tour uh, of the Ashes tour of England.
1: That's amazing. So can I ask you, would he have known Don Bradman?
5: Uh, Yeah, he was there on tour with Don (laughs) Bradman, yeah.
0: Wow, very cool, very Very Uh, cool.
1: That's that's amazing, and I understand you said that Nan had the tour blazer under the house and it got a bit moth-eaten, so I threw it out. She, she threw it out.
5: Yeah, she did. She was a practical lady, my Nan, um, and I never got to see the condition of that, but on her judgment, it probably wasn't worth keeping.
0: So um, the criteria for this in our bottom drawers is memorabilia as opposed to – like, my bottom drawer is a couple of – <laughs> porcelain figure things, which are Ladro, which was all the rage, I don't know, 40 years ago, which my mother left me in her will. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, you know. Well, before
1: we go, Dave, um, that baggy green Australian cricket cap uh, yep. and your granddad competed alongside Dom Brabman. Is it in a special yep. place?
5: Because um, it sounds quite it, valuable. It is quite valuable. Um and uh, yeah, we've got a few other valuable things from that tour uh, cool. photographs and um, booklets. My granddad wrote a really beautiful diary account of the whole tour. Um, but yeah, the baggy greens just sitting in a cupboard in a box with a couple of mothballs.
1: Dave,
0: <laughs> look after look it. Look after it uh, and
1: check on it every month. Um, really special um, panel show-and-tell. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? Baggy green Aussie cricket cap from the 31 Ashes Tour. Gosh, well, with yeah. us is something equally incredible. Can't wait to tell you about this. David is with us. Another David. Kia ora, David.
6: G'day, how
1: do are you? do What do you have?
6: Well, it's a bit weird, really, but um, in a matchbox in a bottom drawer somewhere, I've got a hair from the beard of James K. Baxter.
0: Oh. Simple as that. <laughs> so, how do you know it is a hair from the beard of James K. Baxter?
6: Okay, well, 1970, I was 16 year old kid and we were sort of the um, the intelligentsia of the sixth form and we had a seminar and organized by the, sort of a youth group and along to the seminar came not only Jack shellcrass the famous educationalist but also the very me hairy
0: at training college really
6: yeah fantastic and along with him came this very hairy scruffy barefooted man James K Baxter who we did recognize at that point he was the greatest New Zealand poet or that's what we thought Um and he was forty-four years old at the time. I thought he was a really old man. And he was—we were having the seminar. And he was sitting on the floor. We were sitting on the floor in front of him. He we was sitting on a couch at this sort of casual sort of discussion on on on. I think it was what literature, what part literature should play in modern education. I think that was the theme of the seminar. Yes. And he we was sitting in a shaft of light. And as he scratched his, his beard, I was just sitting about a meter away from him, and I watched in the shaft of sunlight this this whisker. Come dislodged from his brother, his suit beard, and just drift slowly down onto the carpet. <laughs> and I looked at it, and I thought, "Shit, it's famous. This has got to be a famous piece of beard." So when everybody left the room, I sort of kept an eye on the carpet, and I just grabbed it and um, put it in a matchbox because in those days, when you were sixteen 60-year-olds, everybody had a pack of cigarettes and a box of matches. This is
1: amazing. And so, 2023, jump forward, you've got in a matchbox a piece of James K. Beard, James K. Baxter yeah. beard. Yeah,
6: how I mean, how be... much?
0: Just one hair. I mean, how long? One,
6: let's go. Uh, I, don't remember, I haven't looked at it for a long time. It's pretty, you know, <laughs> amazing. <an inch>. David, <laughs> it's an inch.
1: thanks for joining us. That's just an extraordinary, probably the most amazing show and tells we've had. Um, does that mean, Steve McKay, we've got to cut a piece of your beard off and put it in a mesh box for, uh, for future generations?
3: I'm I'm, I'm torn on this one. I can't decide if it's extensively cool or very slightly creepy and stalkerish. It's a very fine line there, (laughs) isn't it? Hey,
1: great panel. Both Cindy Mitchner, Stephen Cope, Kia both taking you out on some peace and love and understanding on the panel. Back tomorrow, 3.45. Uh, Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next.
0: (sighs) Thanks, Alice. Bye.